Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. So far this season, we've talked about various flops and failures from each of the three major broadcast networks. But for this, the final show of our first season, we want to take things to a level of depth that we can only imagine in our wildest nightmares. And for that, there's only one TV network out there that can give it to us. Since 1987, the Fox Network was always seen as the rambunctious kid brother compared to the more traditional offerings that aired on ABC, NBC, or CBS, always trying to put on shows that the so-called traditionalists wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. The Fox Network has seen its fair share of boundary breaking over the years, from its first hits with Married with Children, 21 Jump Street, Tracy Ullman, and The Simpsons, to its current state of dominance thanks to increased sports and news coverage over the decades. The network spent most of its early years trying to prove to everybody that no ideas were bad ones. Of course, as is the case in just about any walk of life, for every success one faces, there's bound to be a failure that counterbalances everything. We've just got to accept the fact that Fox has to make room for terrific shows like Dark Angel, Titus, Undeclared, Action, That 80 Show, Wonder Falls, Fastlane, Andy Richter Controls the Universe, Skin, Girls Club, Cracking Up, The Pits, Firefly, Get Real, Freaky Links, Wanda at Large, Costello, the Lone Gunman, A Minute with Stan Hooper, Normal Ohio, Pasadena, Harsh Realm, Keen Eddie, The Street, American Embassy, Cedric the Entertainer, The Tick, Louie, and Greg the Bunny. Trust us, we could do an entire spin-off series of Fox failures if we wanted to. And those shows were just from this century alone. But for the sake of not counting our brain cells as they die one by one, let's talk about a different kind of failure. Not the kind where ratings were bad, but rather a failure of moral proportions. One that goes on to prove one of the oldest sayings known to mankind. Everybody has their price. Of course, once that price is set, and the transaction goes through, that person could soon wind up with buyer's remorse. In Telehell. As Fox continued to rise during the 90s and the early part of the 21st century, the network still needed some programming to fend off the big boys. As you heard in that earlier Family Guy joke, even though they had their fair share of hits at the beginning, they didn't exactly have the most stellar record when it came to scripted shows. Fortunately, in the late 90s, the network hired someone who would change their fortunes forever, no matter what the price. And on that note, I'm going to ask that we kill the music for a second. Thank you. Earlier this season, we made mention of one individual who we declared Telehell's patron saint, that of Mr. Fred Silverman. We need to revisit that thought for one second because we've since realized that the TV industry is a far bigger one than we give it credit for. So much so that no one individual can do everything by themselves. That and the fact that nobody in this world is immortal not even the patron saints. 
Sure, their work will last forever, but they won't, especially considering Silverman is currently in his 80s as of this recording. So with that, we feel it necessary for our patron saint to have a lieutenant or two, just in case his time ever comes in the mortal world. And that person needs to take the position at a moment's notice. Silverman's time was the 1970s, but for the 21st century, there's really only one person who is willing to serve as the second in command. That man's name is Mike Darnell. If you were to look at his resume, it's pretty easy to consider Darnell as one of the 21st century visionaries of television. Throughout his tenure at the Fox network alone, he and his team helped get behind most of the network's shows for nearly two decades, greenlighting such modern hits as Family Guy, Futurama, So You Think You Can Dance, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, Temptation Island, Joe Millionaire, practically any show Gordon Ramsay ever hosted, and perhaps one of the most important keys to Fox's success. The original run of American Idol, which helped the network achieve number one ratings throughout most of the 2000s. Of course, this is telehell. So with every up, you know there has to be a down. And Darnell didn't just greenlight shows overnight. He had to cut his teeth first. After a stint at the local Fox affiliate in Los Angeles in the mid-1990s, he moved over to the network as their director of specials. Or, considering how bleak the Fox schedule actually looked back then, the position should have been called Executive Patcher of Programming Holes. Which, now that I think about it, sort of makes this Simpsons joke feel just a little coincidental. Not long ago, the Fox Network approached the producers of The Simpsons with a simple request. 35 new shows to fill a few holes in their programming lineup. That's a pretty daunting task, and the producers weren't up to it. So with that, Darnell pumped out a massive output of shows that had questionable entertainment value, but still kept the network from going dark each night. Remember shows like When Animals Attack, World's Wildest Police Chases, or Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction? No need to thank him personally. Point is, people tuned into them anyway. And since we've already made it clear that we would never cover a guilty pleasure on this show, you can't blame the man for doing his job. Yes, these were not exactly Peabody Award-winning shows. But, as we said before, show business is first and foremost a business. It didn't matter how they got the numbers, as long as they got them, especially on a Friday night when very few people were watching TV to begin with. Fast forward to the year 2007, as we hop a flight to the nation of Colombia. While in South America, the late TV producer Howard Schultz, who with his production company Lighthearted Entertainment was already known for the hit reality show Extreme Makeover, was working on a project that, if it worked south of the equator, could possibly be used as potential TV sales fuel for the rest of the world. Schultz's program had a deviously simple concept. Hook a contestant up to a lie detector. A proctor then asks the contestant upwards of 80 questions about that person's personal life. Anything from mundane details to potentially life-shattering ones. Of the questions asked on that test, the contestant then gets to re-answer 20 of them on the TV broadcast. And if they were to answer every single one of them truthfully and honestly, 
they would win the show's top prize of 100 million Colombian pesos, or the rough equivalent to $30,000 in today's American money. In Colombia, the show was known as Nada Mas Que La Verdad, or in English, Nothing But The Truth. Not only did the gimmick work on Colombian TV, but it became the nation's most watched program due to its provocative nature. Perhaps a little too much so, as in October 2007, the show got abruptly canceled when a question was asked to one of its contestants about whether or not she hired a hitman to murder her husband. She said yes, and was awarded 50 million pesos, or $25,000, for her efforts. Proof number one, that everybody has their price. From there, the show began to expand to other parts of the world and became a runaway hit. And if we learned anything else from this season, it's that once a show makes it in another part of the world, it's only a matter of time until the mountains, the prairies, and the oceans white with foam try to get their show to air in America, their home sweet home. With the success of American Idol still making the network a juggernaut in prime time, as well as the Writers Guild going out on strike around this time, Fox realized that just about any new, unscripted show that aired right after Idol was all but certain to be an instant hit. Or at least until the show inevitably moved out of its time slot to see how well it would do on its own. Noticing the success of the show worldwide, Mike Darnell and many of the other executives at the network put on the charm in an effort to bring the show to American shores, which they managed to do very quickly. Of course, this being an Americanized version of an international hit, a few changes needed to be made in order for the show to be even the least bit palatable. First, since this was to be an American primetime game show, it needed an American primetime jackpot. Instead of $30,000 in Colombian money, the stakes were pumped up to half a million dollars for getting all the questions right. Next, it wouldn't be a primetime game show without such familiar tropes as mood lighting and dramatic music, so the show had that as well. Then, the show had to be hyped up as hell in order for the program to attain true overratedness that would appear normal to the average viewer. Considering the show that aired immediately before it, it was practically a one-two punch. Finally, you needed somebody to host it. And while the era of famous people hosting things was in full swing, the Fox network decided to actually downplay that part a little bit. Fortunately, Fox tapped a veteran of the game show circuit to oversee the action. Longtime TV presenter, Mark Wahlberg. What? No. No, not that one. This is Mark L. Wahlberg, host of shows like Temptation Island on the USA Network, Russian Roulette on the Game Show Network, and strangely enough, Antiques Roadshow on PBS. And to their credit, it was a wise move to hire him considering the actual star of the show was just how personal some of these lie detector questions would actually be, as well as how the contestants and their watching family members would react to them. Not to take anything away from Wahlberg, but that's sort of the nature of the beast. The host of anything is there to move the action, not become the center of attention. Now that we have a show put together, the only thing left to do is to prepare ourselves. Trust us, folks. If you've never seen this show before or even vaguely remember it, 
there is nothing in this world or the next that could prepare you for what we're about to go through. You will cringe so much over some of the questions that will be heard in the following clips that you will strongly consider seeking psychiatric care just for hearing them. Also, if you're wondering why we would cover a show that has all the earmarks of the term guilty pleasure written all over it, we should preface this by saying that, number one, this is not a guilty pleasure to us. We'd have to feel pleasure in order to actually enjoy it. And number two, the sword can swing both ways. Just because we love or hate something doesn't mean the rest of the viewing public will feel the same way. With that said, we present to you just a hint of the terror brought on by the moment of truth. In the past year, have you done anything illegal you could go to jail for? Does the thought of kissing your boss excite you? Did you ever wake up in bed with a man whose name you could not remember? Think about this. Have you ever thought your wife married you just to get a green card? <laughs> Do you blame your father for ruining your childhood? Have you ever stolen money from the family business? Did you ever drink alcohol while you were pregnant? And that was just the appetizers. Very fulfilling ones for the Fox network, because when the show premiered on January 23rd, 2008, the show wound up pulling in approximately 23 million viewers thanks to its idle lead-in, marking it as the highest rating for a premiere in the history of the network at that point. So naturally, thanks to that success, strategized or not, the network picked up another 13 episodes to the season the following week. Of the shows that aired during that first season, one particular episode, the series fifth, began with a rather unusual disclaimer given by host Mark L. Wahlberg. This episode was so controversial, it sparked a long debate as to whether or not to air it at all. Quite honestly, if I had my vote, it would not air. It is the most uncomfortable I've ever been on television, asking these questions and listening to the answers that were given. But in the end, it was decided that this episode should air. I will tell you, however, that the truth is often not pretty. So here it is. This is the moment of truth. Considering what we've heard so far, this begs the question, what could possibly be so uncomfortable that the network once known for airing a show called Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire would actually go out of its way to warn viewers that they're about to watch something that may not exactly be kosher? Well, let's begin with the contestant herself, who, out of common courtesy, we will not identify by name because, number one, she already suffered embarrassment once through this particular show, and two, the episode is on YouTube for all the world to see anyway. The lady in question is a beauty stylist who is married to a police officer, and has been for about two years at that point. The lady and the officer are also joined by her parents, her brother, and her sister, who are either there for moral support or because they had nothing better to do on a Monday night. The game begins at level one with the following questions. As an employee of a hair salon, have you ever told a customer you liked their hairstyle when in fact you didn't? Have you ever flashed a stranger just for laughs? <laughs> would you give food to a stray dog before you would give it to a homeless person? Have you ever derived pleasure when one of your siblings has gotten into trouble? 
Have you ever been fired from a job for stealing money? If you knew you wouldn't get caught, would you steal money from your place of employment? She makes an easy $10,000 by answering. Well, no, I have never. Yes, Mark. Yes? Yes. Yes, yes I have. <laughs> yes, I have gotten fired from job. I am going to have to say, no, I would not. We get confirmation for the answers from the disembodied lie detector lady voice. That answer is... Uh, lying? True. That tease took seven seconds, by the way, or enough time to add a delay to a live event. But I digress. The lady wins 10 grand by answering the so-called easy questions. But at level two for $25,000, things get a little more blush-worthy as we hear the following five questions. Since you've been married, have you ever pretended to be asleep in order to avoid having sex with your husband? What do you think the answer is? Do you blame your husband for your lack of close friends? Would you ever be a surrogate mother for your sister if she were unable to have children? Do you think your parents are proud of you? Do you know things about your father that you keep secret from your mother? Her answers, in order, are... Pretended to be asleep, pretended to have a headache, so yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, yes, I would be. No, I don't think my parents are proud of me. Yes, I do. Does she pass the test? That answer is... One Mississippi, two Mississippi... True. Yeah. So now she's made $25,000, and her soul just gets the slightest shade blacker. But does it get even darker still for $100,000? We'll find out after the break. What's that? We have no breaks on this show? Man, we have got to get advertisers in this place. Well, we've got to do something. We just went on break for the first time ever. What are we supposed to... Oh, right! The winner of our 500 downloads giveaway, of course! Well, as a reminder, if you've been following us on Twitter, at Telehell Podcast, we've been doing a giveaway where if you liked and retweeted a certain post, you would have been entered for a chance to win 10 TV show screener DVDs, all of which are packed away in a limited edition robot chicken lunchbox. Well, this is the season finale, and we said we'd be announcing the winner on it. So, let's do that now. Okay, <clears throat> here we go. The winner of the prize package goes to the person with a Twitter handle of... Insert winner here! Congratulations, Mr. Insert, you just won. Okay, I was kidding, I was kidding. That's just what it says in the script. Come on. Okay, the real winner of the prize goes to Twitter user... Max Jacobson 12. Congratulations, Mr. 12. Expect the prize to be at your door in a few days. And I hope you enjoy all the shows. 
And if anybody listening would like to take part in any future giveaways, be sure to follow us on Twitter and on Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. Now then, back to the subject. Level three has four questions. They're more personal still, and it's here where we get to the most cringeworthy parts of the episode. But before we do, we get one other disclaimer from the Wahlberg that didn't leave the Funky Bunch. For those of you just joining us, as I said before, this is the most uncomfortable I've ever been on television. Quite honestly, if I had had my vote, it would not have aired. But since the decision was made to broadcast it, I want to warn you that what you're about to see is very difficult to watch. We don't blame you, not Marky Mark. In the grand scheme of things, a platoon of network executives outrank a presenter any day of the week. So, we gotta do what we gotta do and move on to the first question of the round. After a brief discussion of how the contestant and her fairly recent husband are dealing with a new marriage, her answer was strangely a little on the vague side. And then, the first punch hits her. Do you secretly stay in touch with any boyfriends that your husband does not know about? Fortunately, she avoids the jab. Uh, the answer is no. That answer is true. The hit then gets a little harder on the next question. Have you ever taken off your wedding ring to appear as if you were single? And with little hesitation, as though she willed herself into thinking that she's only answering these questions for the money, she then tells us... Yes, I have. That answer is true. From there, we get the first of the episode's biggest body blows. That said, here's the third question in the round. Do you believe you might have been in love with a former boyfriend on your wedding day? After lengthy hesitation... Yes, I believe I was. That answer is... true. She lives to see another question. And it's at this point where we should probably also point out another mechanic to the game that we forgot to mention until now. Where the contestants invited guests are sitting, there's a large white button in the middle of the stage. When that button is pressed, it will replace the question that was being asked with another question from that level, but they can only do that once per game. One other gimmick worth noting that happens in this next question is the introduction of a surprise mystery guest associated with a contestant. This is your $100,000 moment of truth, and this question will not be asked by me. It's by a surprise guest. Can you tell everybody who this is, or do I need to do it? I, I can't speak right now, so... This is your ex-boyfriend, Frank. Oh, a uh, quick sidebar for a second. Don't you just love the way the studio audience is reacting to all this? I half expect Russell Crowe to bring Maximus back from the dead just so he can give us one more. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? Never have I seen or heard an audience be so bloodthirsty without actual blood being spilled. Moving on, the mystery man asks his question. If I wanted to get back together with you, would you leave your husband? It looks as though the lady is about to answer, when suddenly, just when you think we've witnessed the worst of humanity in a single question, the contestant's sister thankfully and mercifully pushes the skip button, much to the bloodthirsty audience's disappointment. 
We don't care what the studio audience thinks, and we're pretty certain neither one of them were hugged by a parent growing up. But that lady deserves to be nominated for sainthood for pushing the button. Or at least until we find out what the replacement question is. Do you believe I'm the man you should be married to? You would think that with a question this volatile, that one would actually take their time and consider the potential consequences if the wrong thing is revealed. Thanks to the magic of TV editing, we may never truly know how long it took for her to answer the question. But for all of us watching, it only took all of 20 seconds to throw away dignity. Well, <laughs> wow. Um, um, I'm gonna be honest and say yes. She, of course, is telling the truth. But at what cost? Yes, she just won $100,000. But who's to say whether or not it's going to go towards future couples counseling bills or even divorce lawyers? A sane person would probably take this moment to realize just how much damage they've done to their life just to make a couple of bucks. And that same sane person would hopefully find it to be the best move to slam the brakes and leave with their winnings. Thing is, the odds of finding somebody sane on a reality show is about as slim as finding a golf ball in the snow. It's not impossible, but it's pretty rare when it happens. So naturally, instead of hanging on to whatever rationality there's left to be had, she of course moves on to the next round with a prize of $200,000 for answering three questions. And with that, this gem of a question that all but kills everybody on the inside. Since you've been married, have you ever had sexual relations with someone other than your husband? You know that scene in the movie Semi-Pro where Woody Harrelson punches Will Ferrell in the jejunum? The sensation he feels when he tries to hold on to the contents of his stomach for as long as he could? And how excruciating that must feel? Well, if that question was the punch to the gut, you're about to hear the equivalent to violent vomiting. Consider the marriage destroyed in three, two... I'm gonna have to say yes. That answer is... True. And boom goes the dynamite. And really, there's nothing to add to that moment that wouldn't include any semblance of disbelief or slack-jawed shock. A woman took it upon herself to ruin her marriage for the sake of possibly earning money that will more than likely be split in half once the inevitable divorce gets finalized. An answer that one hopes was worth every penny. Moving on to the next question. Do you think you're a good person? Really? That's the next question? After all we just went through, the show now has the temerity, the gall, and the balls of steel to ask if someone who, to recap, lies to her customers about their hair, flashed strangers for the hell of it, would starve the homeless, gets joy out of whenever her siblings get in trouble, got fired for stealing on the job, faking her way out of intimacy, blames her soon-to-be ex-husband for lack of social life, have parents who could not be proud of her, keeps secrets about her parents from others, pulls a reverse Adam Sandler in Just Go With It just so she can go out and party, had feelings for others on her wedding day, still had strong feelings for her ex, and cheated on her husband if she is in fact a good person? Where the flying fuck is Rachel Blow when you need her? I'm a good person.
up enough strength to confidently say honestly i think i am a good person so your answer is yes and ladies and gentlemen it is my pleasure to present to you karma that answer is false above that I wish I was a part of that sanity reigned supreme and smote somebody who clearly needed a conscience upgrade. Just exactly how does she defend her answer, though? Because even after everything I have done, stealing the money and everything, I think that I've become a better person. That's why I think I am a good person. Yet it came up as a lie, which means that somewhere in you, you haven't forgiven yourself. And you, somewhere... Your truth is that you don't think you're a good person at all. Yes, yes, yes. Very well put. Or to borrow another couple verses from Miss Rachel Bloom. You ruined everything, you stupid bitch. You ruined everything, you stupid, stupid bitch. The contestant goes home with nothing in the monetary sense. But she will also go home with a parting gift to end all parting gifts a lifetime of shame and degradation. And all it cost her was her dignity, her respect, and her marriage. Proof number two that every person has their price. A few weeks after her show aired, she was actually called back to do a follow-up interview to discuss everything that's happened since then. What has her life become in the aftermath of the most talked about show of the season? It was a whirlwind, it really was. People were calling me, my cell phone was ringing, off the hook, my house phone. What was her initial reaction while watching the show at home? I was in shock. I was in tears. <laughs> I'm hurting inside, but you know, we're all hurting inside. What feelings still exist for her former boyfriend? Uh, I think everybody, no matter who they're with or who they're married to, there's always that they never lose feelings for somebody else. It just doesn't go away. You know, I mean, the heart wants what it wants. And now, the question everyone's been asking, what is the status of her relationship? We, we're going through our stuff. We're currently not living under the same roof, but I think we both need this to figure out what we want. And finally, she has a message for the American public. Thank you to everybody. Um, thanks for the negative, thanks for the positive because it's, it's made me a lot stronger. And it really is true. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I'm glad I can sit here today and say that. If I may counterpoint that for a second, let me just say in response to that. Fuck you. You knew what you were getting yourself into when you got on the show. You have no right to spin this around to make this look like you're the victim. You're the one that caused the damage. You're the one that derailed the train. This the hell off. Despite that adventure in Schadenfreude, the show continued to be a hit for Fox that season. And a second season of the show was actually picked up. While the second season was still a provocative hit for the network, for reasons that were never 100% made clear, the show's third season never 
made it to air. That's right. Despite its success, it was canceled. And while there wasn't exactly a precedent set that a hit show would get the axe under various circumstances, if I were to take a shot in the dark, I would guess it was a combination of the network getting deluged with hate mail and possibly the contestants might have felt the biggest case of buyer's remorse they've ever experienced after appearing on the show. So with that, the network decided to put on some shows that raised the bar in sharp comparison. Cult classic game show, Hole in the Wall, and perennial summer hit, So You Think You Can Dance. Certainly the polar opposite of the other program. But considering how unclean the moment of truth made some viewers, seeing people hilariously fail to fit through a styrofoam wall was about as close to an antidote as the audience was willing to take. The moment of truth remained in limbo, including an episode where somebody actually made it to and won the half-million-dollar top prize. But considering the audience had their fill of evocative and provocative programming, it was probably best to let the show sit on the shelf until the end of time. Is something that I wish I could say. Because in 2014, the production company that put on the show, Lighthearted Entertainment, opened up its own YouTube channel and posted almost every single episode ever. And it is because of this move that we must now do two things. Number one, we were hoping to give this show a clean sweep in the nine circles. But because these shows have officially seen the light of day, it's now ineligible for the limbo circle. And number two, because all these shows have seen the light of day, this now gives us just cause to view the episode in question where somebody actually wins the top prize. But because we want to make sure we don't go over time, and because the YouTube channel seems to only have this one part of the episode, and because there's still not enough hand sanitizer in the world to clean us up from that last episode, we're going to cut straight to the climax. This contestant, who, again, we're not going to identify by name, was involved in a polygamous family. And for pretty much the entire episode, the questions were pretty much about that aspect of her life in no uncertain terms. Without the episode being available in full, I can only imagine what the first 20 questions are. For now, though, this moment right here makes television history, and for all the wrong reasons. Do you believe your father, as an adult, has ever had sexual relations with a minor? Oh, oh. oh God. Oh. Excuse me. I think I got punched in the jejunum. Okay. Okay. I think I'm good. I think... I think I'm... I'm okay. <clears throat> I'm okay. 
In a way, I'm kind of glad this moment never made it to network television. It gives me hope that somewhere in the nether recesses of what passes as a soul for a network TV executive, there's still some shred of dignity to be had. Of course, I'm watching this online, so at this point, to hell with dignity! Ugh. The sooner we rip this bandage off, the sooner this can end. How does she answer the question? Yes. That answer is... True. Proof number three that every person has their price. She became the show's only winner of the top prize, and all she had to do was sell her father faster than a functioning kidney on the black market. Some would argue that what she did was brave, and to an extent, it was. After this show was made public, the contestant defended her decision to appear on the show via blog, stating that she only did it to expose the dangers of polygamy. Take that with as many grains of salt as you wish. But even in a world full of train wreck television, there has to be limits as to what the public can stomach in a given sitting. As proof of this, Mike Darnell tries to defend his decision to put on the show in the first place. In a 2008 interview with the website TV Week, Darnell states that, quote, This is the first game show where you technically know all the questions and answers. And yet, this is the hardest show I've ever been a part of in my life. Darnell goes on to say, quote, This is going to be the talk of the town. You're either going to love it or think it's the end of Western civilization. And that's the stuff that works. As for what he thinks the contestants go through as they're answering questions, Darnell goes on to say, quote, In the vast majority of contestants, 99% of them don't say that the machine is wrong. You get, hmm, I was a little worried when I answered that question reactions. Darnell then says it was very obvious in the back of their mind that they knew it might come up as a lie. I don't think we've ever got it wrong in the 24 contestants we've had. And they never protested. They're embarrassed. They thought they could fool a lie detector, or weren't sure about their answer. The game is an illusion. It's a mechanism. By the time a participant is done, you feel like you know all about them. It's like doing a dysfunctional family documentary in 20 minutes. All the secrets come out, all the lies come out." End quote. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, I think that's all the proof we need. Where does this bowel blockage of a game show slide out onto the fires of Telehell? Here's hoping the hand sanitizer we've been using is fireproof as we light up the nine circles one more time. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Let's begin with the fact that counting the unaired online shows, this program was on for 35 episodes, thus causing the biggest miracle this program is going to face today by avoiding limbo, as well as an exemption in fraud, because at the end of the day, no matter what the subject matter was, the game was still played in the way it was supposed to be played, and the contestants still got paid for it, even if their episode went unaired, so no fault there. However, the fact that a season was in the can, and the network decided to play keep away with that season for no rhyme or reason in the first place after such an arguably promising start is a questionably conditional act of heresy and treachery on the network's end. 
Granted, maybe they grew a spine in making the decision, but a smarter thing to do would either be to air the episodes as intended on TV or just not make them at all. A classic shit or get off the pot situation. As for the show itself, it came to be thanks in part to the success in Colombia, where it got canceled thanks to that hitman question from earlier. So, by proxy, a violent act helped inspire the program. Meanwhile, in the States, a good chunk of the questions they asked on the show were certainly of a lustful nature, especially the ones that one lady answered that presumably ended her marriage, which in turn was just one example that caused the audience to tune in with record numbers to the network, prompting Fox to give them more of what they wanted with an increased episode order, thus fulfilling the viewers' gluttony. The contestants pretty much threw away their dignity so they could make a couple of bucks, which could also be said for the network, considering the ratings they were pulling in that allowed this to happen. So we actually get a double-edged sword of greed. But perhaps the most damning of all about this show was that while some of the answers the contestants gave invoked some major wrath towards loved ones, some families were actually forgiving over the nature this was presented. After all, they could have used some of that prize money too. But for those whose damage could be considered irrevocably repairable, this show also brought about some deep-seated issues to those families for years to come. And may God have mercy on every last one of them. The Moment of Truth earns seven out of nine circles of telehell. I'll be honest, this was a tough one to sit through. Not just in watching people go to such bafflingly incredible lengths just to win fabulous cash prizes, but because I had to keep asking myself the same thing that Paul Shear, June Diane Raphael, and Jason Manzukas asked themselves on a weekly basis. How did this get made? How did something so devious and so soul-crushing not only make its way to the airwaves of commercial television, but was compelling enough for it to last as long as it did? The short answer is probably the fact that there was a writer's strike going on at the time and networks were desperate for new content. And this was one of the shows that we as a bored TV audience were stuck with. Longer answer, pretty much the same reason why the contestants might have appeared on the show in the first place. Pure, unfiltered desperation. Whether that desperation comes from the fact that the contestants were looking for life-changing money so they could probably go out into the real world and attempt to make it a better place, or if a TV network was looking for a way to stay afloat when all the other shows they had on their schedule were reruns. The point is that no matter how much money any other contestant who appeared on the show wound up winning or losing, or how big a TV network's ratings was going to be, a far greater prize was irrevocably damaged. That of human decency something that would take all the money in the world to restore. And yet, it would still not be able to undo the damage some of these contestants wound up inflicting on themselves and their loved ones. Forget Telehel for a second. This show should be run on a continuous loop in the actual hell. And have those who sin watch it on a sofa made of barbed wire and lemon juice. Or, if you want to put in more direct terms... Fuck this show! Fuck everything about this show! Fuck the people who put it on! Fuck the people who played the game! Fuck the people who tuned in! Fuck this show too! And on that note, this concludes our first season of Telehell. We hope that during the past 13 weeks, we learned that failure is not just a part of our lives, but it can also be used as a learning tool in an effort to avoid similar calamities. 
Whether it be a couple of games that nobody wanted to play. Last week we did a show called You're in the Picture that laid, <laughs> without a doubt, the biggest bomb. A hotel that nobody wanted to stay in. I have a wife and you have something to sing about. A train that nobody wanted to take a trip on. It's a super train, and there's hope it will pull in a big audience because there's a lot riding on this train. People that didn't really need to be there in the first place. Uncle Jesse, you still look like you could take us over your knee and pound some sense into us. Well, that would depend on how much sense you needed pounding in Or know what not to buy thanks to some misfired advertising. Aren't you hungry for burger chicken? We all make mistakes some of which are bigger than others. And through it all, we... Uh... Uh, through it all, we... When did we get a phone? Okay, I'll bite. Hello, telehealth? Uh-huh. 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 Uh, how soon should I be there? You know it takes me about a month to walk to the office, right? Does it have to be in person? Like, I can't speak over the phone? Oh. <clears throat> okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm on my way. Thank you. Well, this is a little awkward. Apparently, the boss wants to have a word with me. The office is located at the center of hell downstairs, and I'm all the way on the top floor here in Limbo. I would take an elevator, but unfortunately, they, they don't have any here. So, I guess I better get going. Just in case I don't make it back, if it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. Good thing I'm wearing my sneakers. Be a long trip. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn.